Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello, and welcome to The Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, and joining me in the virtual studio is my good friend and the person who wrote the introduction to that famous work, Jesus, the Eschatological Prophet in the Fourth Gospel, a case study in dialectical tensions. Ken <laughs> Hellenius. Ken, how are you doing, my friend? Um, wow, you actually are going to leave me speechless because, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm busy uh, reaching for my dictionary to figure out what <laughs> any of those words meant. And B, it sounded like hooey. Uh, I mean, I don't really know what's going on there. Um, that is, is actually that... that is actually a real article um, <laughs> that, that I was that I was actually in my research in the book that I'm that I'm writing. Um, one of the things that I'm doing when I'm critiquing liberation theology, I'm critiquing their um, eschatological perspective when it comes to Christ as the uh, as, a, as the means of salvation. Uh-huh. And, and what they do is they kind of put this veneer over. Um, they, they, they really is really like a theological tagline it is really when faith, when faith in Jesus Christ comes into play. And so um, Father Gustavo Gutierrez, who's the, uh, you know, well-known kind of godfather of liberation theology, talks about this eschatological principle. So my research, I came across this article and I wow. said, oh, this would be great. <laughs> and I saw Ken Alanius <laughs> wrote the introduction. I said, oh, my goodness, I've, I've got to use it now. Now, I, you really put me in an awkward spot here, Deacon, for two reasons. One, uh, one is um, that, you know, Father Gustavo Gutierrez uh, was, uh, became a Dominican. Um, yes, that's right. Uh, and not only did he become a Dominican, but he taught for many years here at the University of Notre Dame and yes. I think still lives in South Bend or at least has a has a residence where he lives here in South Bend. Um, he's retired, well retired now. He's in his he's, he's 90. Uh, He's 90. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I really probably shouldn't say too much for fear that, uh, you know, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't want to offend. Say he, yeah, it does say he's a wholesome kind of chair. Right. At your name there. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no diss to my alma mater, though, but, uh, but I will be critiquing. I mean, again, with regard to can this be, can liberation theology be used as a vehicle for, um, healing race tensions or, and, and improving okay. race relations. Sure. So that, so I'm not critiquing it per se. I'm outlining the principles and saying, can these principles be applied, as some people are attempting to do now, apply those principles to healing racism. And then that's what I'm critiquing. Because sure. I'm I saying have to, it can't. I have to ask. <laughs> so. okay, well, oh, well, there we go. Conclusion <laughs> is they can't. There you go. Um, I have to ask, because you used a word that I know you know, you and I know what it means, but it's not a common word. And uh, you talked about eschatology. Can yes. you unpack that for for the average layman? For you know, for for those of us who maybe aren't as well versed in theology. Yeah. So in this different branches of theology and the ways of thinking about God, and one of them is called uh, eschatology. And what eschatology looks at, it looks at how our faith comes to its final fulfillment. Okay. You know, um, uh, life with God forever in heaven. So there's this, um, in a sense, a futuristic dimension to our faith, 
we look at how everything in our faith points us toward our ultimate end, our ultimate purpose and meaning, which is the beatific vision, uh, living with God forever. So what things about how we live our faith, how we teach our faith, point and direct us toward our end? That's the basic definition of, of eschatology. See, that's why I tune in to this show, so that I can hear from you what I should know and what makes a difference. So that's great. <laughs> Thanks, Deacon. <laughs> You're most welcome. So, Deacon, we have been having this marvelous conversation, and speaking about coming towards the ultimate end, we have been having a conversation reading together Pope St. John Paul II's document on the culture of life and the gospel of life called Evangelium Vitae, and we are nearing the end. I think in the next few weeks, we're going to wrap up this conversation entirely. So, uh, we're, we're entering in into our kind of final stages, and we're picking up our conversation tonight with paragraph 91. Um, We've been talking about how do we serve the gospel of life. Last week, we spoke about supporting um, marriage and motherhood, uh, and then we also talked a little bit about how actually politicians and policymakers can themselves support and put in place policies. We talked about the necessity of rethinking labor, residential, social service policies to become a society that supports family life. So here in paragraph 91, it kind of continues this conversation. And uh, Pope St. John Paul II is going to speak about how we take the ideas of family, pro-family policy and address one of the biggest issues of his time, which continues to be an issue today, and that's the idea of population growth. And so that's where we're going to pick up our conversation tonight. Yeah, that is an important issue, uh, continues to be today, especially when you look at what's going on in China, which I'll talk about uh, in a second here. But uh, John Paul II says that governments and the various international agencies must, above all, strive to create economic, social, public health, and cultural conditions which will enable married couples to make their choices about procreation in full freedom and with genuine responsibility. Now, I mentioned China because, for as many people know, China was um, dictating how many children people should have. And for many, many years, they introduced a one-child policy. So basically, they're saying that a married couple can only have one child in order to keep their population numbers down. What they found, and the demographers in China has showed this clearly, that it's not working, (laughs) that that if they don't increase their population, they're going to come to a point where their economy is going to crash and probably almost never recover. So then they instituted a two-child policy a couple of years ago. And now they're getting ready to implement a three-child. I mean, see, so, so so my question is, where's the overpopulation? It's a myth. Right. It's a myth. It's a myth that's used in order to control people's lives and keep valuable resources from the people who need them. That's what it's for. And that's called communism. That happens in that type of system of government. And so it doesn't work in China. It did not work in India uh, when they tried to distribute condoms to everybody in order to decrease their population. And Mother Teresa showed back in 1993 that using natural family planning was far more effective uh, than, than contraception was, which was contraception, the government, because it was a um, British Journal of Medicine study that actually looked at this. It said, oh, Mother Teresa versus the Indian government. 
and uh, when they got the results, they refused to publish them. Wow. <laughs> and so they had a secondary company come in and double check the results, and then they published it in the September 1993 issue of the British Journal of Medicine that clearly showed that the fa- quote, quote unquote failure rate uh, using contraceptive methods was seven percent. Right? Wow. Well, that, all right, but that's that's pretty good, y'all. Uh, like I, I, I mentioned this before. Imagine you get on the plane. The pilot says we have a 93% chance of getting to our destination. Mm-hmm. Right? You're going to be asking yourself, is today the 7%? Right, exactly. <laughs> How many flights have you done today? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> right. As opposed to Mother Teresa with a – and look, look what it failure rate. That means you got pregnant. That's considered a failure right, right. in our culture. 0.2%. That, that statistic is called the virtual zero result. So right. Mother Teresa, I mean, she blasted the gun. I mean, it's not it, statistically, it's not even close. You know, this shows you that that God's ways are better than our ways. Again, the church never teaches how many children that couples are to have. The church never has dictated that. It's up to each couple to determine for themselves how many children that God is going to bless them with or grace them with. That is not the the church never says just have as many kids as possible. That's that's ridiculous. Right. Um, you know, again, it's it's a prudential decision of a married couple. And John Paul II here is talking about the freedom to be able to give people to do that. And in China, they took away that freedom, and look what's happened to them. Wow. And how did China actually take that freedom away? But through forced, through forced abortion basically, too. I mean, when we say a one-child policy, it's not just them saying, well, you shouldn't have a second child. No, they literally would snatch children away or entirely eliminate the children in the womb through abortion. And so this is not a just a simple suggestion policy, but this was leading to direct killing of children in the womb. That's the result of these policies. And what's amazing is that John Paul II in this paragraph too mentions that giving families the choice, as he says, the ability to make choices about procreation in full freedom and with genuine responsibility, he says, this is the only way to respect the dignity of persons and families, as well as the authentic cultural patrimony of peoples. So this is how societies and cultures themselves continue and how they flourish is when members of that society have the freedom to make that decision when it's not dictated by a committee on high or a committee in the capital, but when they have the opportunity to make that decision, when they can respond because they know that they have the resources to raise children and that they have the ability and their job is safe and has the freedom to spend time with the family and to support the elderly and their elderly relatives and things like this. This is what we're talking about when we talk about supporting families. Yes, a very important principle here, because what, what this goes to is the very heart of what marriage is about, right? It's Bingo. And when sexuality within marriage, it's for the good of the spouses and for the procreation and education of children, you know? So, so there's a spiritual principle and a, just a practical um, principle applied to this as well. This is the way we, you know, continue our species, yeah. right? And so that's why the government should have things that protect that union of a man, as opposed to a union that only looks what's best for itself. Again, we talked about this last time, the common good. You know, there are certain relationships 
that are only serve the good of the individuals in that relationship and does not serve the common good. The one thing about marriage between a man and a woman, it perpetuates that common good by perpetuating more people in our culture. You know, and I think every child has a right to be raised by a mom and a dad. You know, mm -hmm. I think they're unique and beautiful gifts um, that each parent brings into the relationship that uh, goes toward the full spiritual, intellectual development of that child. And I think that's what every child has a right to. And we're talking about a culture of life. We want to make sure that we're creating a situation that's not just for the good of the children, but also for the continued um, perpetuation of our of our species. And I think this, uh, what the, the church teaches in this area of a man and a woman, which is part of that natural moral law, is the way to, that we can do that. Well, and that leads into this next section, which is entirely about the family as the sanctuary of life. So paragraph 92, he begins, he says that within the people of life and the people for life, which is what we call the culture of life, the family has a decisive responsibility. And this responsibility flows from its very nature as a community of life and love founded upon marriage and from its mission to guard, reveal, and communicate love. And just as you were saying, Deacon, here it's a matter of God's own love, of which parents are co-workers and, as it were, interpreters when they transmit life and raise it according to his fatherly plan. And I love this sentence. This is the love that becomes selflessness, receptiveness, and gift. Within the family, each member is accepted, respected, and honored precisely because he or she is a person. And if any family member is in greater need, the care which he or she receives is all the more intense and attentive. You know, earlier we were talking about when a central committee guides all the decisions, that doesn't respect the freedom and the personhood of the members of, you know, of that society. Like you get in communist China, you know, with one child policy and things. A family is a community where the central committee is mom and dad. You know, and mom and dad together are guiding for the common good of the entire family. And they have the exact needs, the very needs of each of their children and each member of the family in mind. And they respond to them in a way that honors and supports them to give them what they need to help them flourish. And that's what the family is. It is this domestic church, as, as we say so often. This is the unit upon which all of society is built, is the family. No, absolutely. And he says the role of the family in building a culture of life is decisive and irreplaceable. You know, that, that's extremely important. And again, we're living in a culture that's trying to create God in its own image and likeness. You know, yeah. instead of instead of following on with the principle of natural law, which is another thing I'm writing about in my book, by the way, I just, I've got to think about all this on my mind because I'm applying these principles as they as they apply to race and how um, invincible ignorance can't be used as an excuse for not following the natural law. And, and so even though you may have a desire to live in a relationship that's apart from this, the natural relationship of man and woman. Does the does the government then have a right to say that that is the same that that relationship that you're in is the same as a, as a relationship between a man and a woman, a marriage between a man and a woman, or is it marriage at all? 
You know, there are reasons why marriage was protected and laws were put in place to protect that union of a man and a woman because of what that relationship did for everyone, right. you know, and, and and not just for the individuals. And one thing he says here that I, I wrote wow next to it, <laughs> it says Christian <laughs> parents must be concerned about their children's faith and help them fulfill the vocation God has given them. The parents' mission as educators also includes teaching and giving their children an example of the true meaning of suffering and death. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. what? Hold on. I mean, and, and, I, and I think about this in a very small way as a child remembering my mom going to work every night. She, she was a cardiac care nurse worth the graveyard shift you know, with, with holes in her shoes and huge runs in her stockings because we needed stuff. You know, she sacrificed the things that she needed so that her, her children could have the things that she never had uh, as yeah. a child growing up in poverty. And so this makes it, when you talk about suffering and death, they don't mean literally suffering and death, but, but the sacrifices that parents make on behalf of their children is a witness and a participation in the suffering of Christ. Right. Um, and, and again, that happens within that context of, of families. Now, there are many families that are, that are placed into a situation, you know, the death of a spouse, and now one parent has to raise a child, or divorce, or something like that. But, and, and, but those sad and tragic circumstances should not be concretized in the culture and in the legal sphere as being equal to marriage, because it's not. Yeah. This is this idea of exposing and kind of teaching uh, the children about the realities of and the true meaning of suffering and death. I think uh, the Holy Father, you know, does mention that um, they're able to do this if they're sensitive to the suffering around them, and even more if they succeed in fostering attitudes of closeness, assistance, and sharing towards sick or elderly members of the family. You know, as you say, we we all know families that have been broken through pain and suffering. Um, but to be aware of and to learn from that experience and to then draw ever closer to others who are themselves suffering is a powerful lesson. You know, we we always, you know, we think of, oh, I want to shelter my child from every bit of suffering and every bit of pain. But in reality, we know we can't suffer. We can't, we can't do that. We can't shield from every suffering because eventually, you know, the dad's not going to be there forever. Mom's not going to be there forever and ever able to, to be like a, you know, to provide a bubble, uh, and make life perfect, but to expose and to walk with and to show compassion is an even better lesson and an even more important lesson to teach one's children. And that's exactly what we attempted to do when they were smaller. Uh, just two quick examples. One, during Thanksgiving, um, at our parish, we used to have a um, a Thanksgiving dinner for poor people and for shut-ins. You know, and we used to invite them. To, we, right. we put out the nice china, not the, the paper stuff or the Tupperware. I mean, we, we put out the nice china, real knives and forks and, and napkins and stuff and have a—and uh, and the children, our, my kids would, along with other kids in the parish, would serve— the folks, you know, and then we have bingo where we give away coats and gloves and practical things that they need, toys for the kids, which would be the only Christmas presents these kids would ever see. 
Right. You know, and, and just to, for them to participate in that and see like this is how we live our faith, not just pay lip service to it. The other one was we would go and deliver Christmas presents. We used to have, a, you know, the, the Christmas tree and, uh, and and you put, you know, there's the tags on the tree, you know, and you used to go buy gifts. And then but what we used to do is deliver them to the people as well. And so we were out delivering. I brought the kids with me. I didn't have to, but I wanted them to see, you know, when they walk into and when we're leaving, they're saying things like, where are their shoes? Why do they smell like that? Where's their daddy? Because so many times we walk in the house, it's just mom and the kids, no dad. Is where's their daddy, you know? And and to really try to talk to the kids about the issues and, and to, so they can see that this is how important it is. Now as adults, you know, I, I, you know, it's beautiful to see the heart they have for the poor. You know, it's, it, awesome. it, it, you know, um, it, it's it's uh, edifying to see that they really deeply care about other people, not just what's best for themselves. Yeah. You know, all the kids have that ethos. You know? So it's but, but it's something that you just can't teach in a classroom. That's something right. you have to get roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty in the Lord's vineyard. Amazing. This next paragraph, paragraph uh, 93, uh, it would do Father, the Venerable Father Patrick Payton very proud because he talks about the importance of prayer as family. Of course, Venerable Patrick Payton, uh, Holy Cross Father, the family that prays together stays together. But John Paul goes beyond that. He says, yes, it's important that we pray and we, we observe the you know liturgy, all of that together. The family prays together, as he says, in order to glorify and give thanks to God for the gift of life. But the celebration which gives meaning to every other form of prayer and worship is found in the family's actual daily life together, if it is a life of love and self-giving. It is in being and showing charity toward our family members, and again, attending to those whose needs are greater, uh, giving of ourselves, sacrificing, and uh, showing love, that we actually are being Christ for one another. And that's where we learn in this domestic church, in this sanctuary of life and love, where we learn to love beyond our family. And we learn that because we see the gift of self poured out for the other. Uh, he also goes on here in this paragraph to speak about, as he says, a particularly significant ex expression of solidarity between families is a willingness to adopt or take in children abandoned by their parents or in situations of serious hardship. True parental love is ready to go beyond the bonds of flesh and blood in order to accept children from other families, offering them whatever is necessary for their well-being and full development. This beautiful witness of adoption in order to support children and love children, that they too might flourish, is an act of love. And it is an act of true charity, but it's more than just, you know, what we think of when we think of charity. It's true love, and it's love for the sake of the other, as other, you know, and that's the beautiful, the beautiful thing. Uh, and it's a, it's a great invitation. I'm really glad that he recognized that here. You know, and I'd love for us as a society to stop using terms like my adoptive brother, my adoptive, forget that, just he's my brother. Forget right. the, I mean, think about it. It's scriptural because at the finding in the temple, the, you know, when they found you, did Mary say, your stepfather and I were looking for you, your foster father and I, your adoptive father and I were looking for you. No, she goes, your father and I. 
Right. We're look, we're looking for you. And you she know, knew uh, darn well who he was. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Because in the Jewish system, uh, the father was the biological father or, you know, uh, in, in the case where a brother died and the uh, and the uh, the older the or depending on whether older or younger, the brother of that family took over and he was now the father. And he was recognized as the father of those children. Um, so it didn't matter whether you were the biological father or not. If you accepted the responsibility, you were the father, period. And, and, you know, and I think dropping that adoptive language, even though factually it's true, I'm not saying denying the reality of adoption, but I'm saying, you know, it, it almost puts a stigma on yeah. it. You know, adoptive is if there's something wrong or it's just in this exclusion. Well, you're adopted, like you're not real really our brother. Yeah, you may not have to say mother or father, but you are very, you, you, when you're part of that family, you know, um, it doesn't matter. You are, like, I'll I, I show you a simple example for us. Like, whenever we had our friend, our kids' friends over, like, I take them for ice cream and they go to a movie, I would pay for them. They say, oh, no, I have my own money. My parents gave my own money. I'm like, no, if you're with us, you're a member of our family. Period. You know, I treated yeah. them like they were all my own children. They were under my care. I treated them as if they were my own children. It didn't matter to me, you know. Um, it, it, so, so I think that's the kind of attitude I think um, that uh, we need to adopt in order to, I think, to implement some of these beautiful things that John Paul II is saying about uh, the life and love and self-giving. Drop the labels and and just recognize the the person as being a member of that family. Um. You know, we published a book here in uh, with University of Notre Dame Press from the uh, from our new series, Catholic Ideas for a Secular World, called "Not by Nature, but by Grace: Forming Families Through Adoption," uh, by Gil Mylander, mm-hmm. a great Lutheran theologian. Um, and in that book, he he points out that it's through adoption that we are become sons and daughters That's of, right. of God. And so, if adoption forms a true family. We are truly the sons and daughters of God. And if that's not true, you know, then, then where are we in relation to our own savior? And in the same way our human families are. Yeah. And we, we, we use the term qualitatively there adoption because only Jesus could truly call himself the son. I mean, physically, (laughs) right. right? But but we're all adopted. That's why we're also sons of Mary. Right. I mean, uh, and our our is that family dynamic, that family concept that we have to keep in mind. Absolutely. Well, Deacon, again, as usual, we run out of time, but we do invite you to connect with us on Facebook. Just go to Living Stones Media on Facebook and connect with us. But Deacon, until we gather next week, might we have a blessing? May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.